Jerry, come on up. Okay, you can be seated. Good morning. My name is Jerry Watkins. I am our current uh, chairman of the elders. And I'm here to speak this morning just to follow up an email that you received this week about a financial challenge that we're in. Um, our elders thought it would be good to, to follow up a, a letter with a personal conversation. So I'm just going to take some time this morning to talk to you about that email, that challenge, try to do it in a manner that's uh, more personal than, than the letter. So just give you the, I'm going to try to give you the cliff notes of that communication. And that is, we, we, we face um, financial challenges frequently in the life of the church. What sets this one off is a little bit different is that this one is, is more of a prolonged financial challenge. In, their, in our uh, budget shortfall policy, it says that if you have a prolonged period of financial challenge, you need to go before the congregation. You need to let them know. You need to communicate. And that's the basis of that communication is basically letting you know it's, it's met that qualifications of a, of a prolonged financial challenge. Now, we, we, we trust in God. This is, this is, we're trying to be good stewards of communicating with you. We're not trying to scare anybody or, or, or believe that something's wrong. Um, I'm gonna, there's a couple things that I want to emphasize about that, um, that letter. I don't want to rehash that letter. I want to go back through it. It was very detailed. And three things that I want you to, to walk away with today is one is to understand ministry is, is still going forward. We have not canceled any of our ministry efforts. Our ministry teams are all working forward. No projects, uh, children, youth, adult, all the ministries are intact and going strong. Results of ministry are, are very strong. We're seeing new people come in uh, to these services every week. We're in, as a group, when we meet as elders, we're having the opportunity to, to vote for new people into membership, which is a fantastic thing. Um, so ministry is going fantastic. It's going well. No changes there. Our, your, your local ministry team is being paid. Our domestic missionaries are being funded. Our international ministries are being funded. Everything is, is in order. So I want you to understand that. The other thing I want you to understand is, is communication is important. That policy is important in communicating and tr being transparent with you and letting you know. So I want to just tell you that we're, we're going to continue to try to do a better job. The letter addresses a couple of ways. This is one of the ways that we're going to try to, to communicate more. The, the bulletin has financial information in it. You'll start seeing that on a regular basis. The third thing I want you to take away is that uh, you're probably saying, okay, thanks, it's good information, but, and what's, what's your action plan? And this is our action plan what, that we would like for you to do. We would like for you to, to pray for our church, pray for the financial challenges that are ahead, pray for wisdom and decisions that need to be made, and pay, pray for God's provision to, for us to, to, to meet this challenge and to overcome. And then I want to ask you to pray What's your personal role in this? What's God calling you in terms of how you might reach out to help us to meet this challenge? I mentioned communications. If you have any questions, I'd love to answer them right now, but this is not the format to do that. So come see me uh, after the service. Feel free to call me. 
uh, speak to any of your elders. There are several here today. Reach out, whatever questions, they're all informed. Uh, Pastor Tim is an elder. He's obviously on top of all of this. Please call the church office. Uh, Ramona will put you right in touch with whoever you need to, to speak with. So I hope this helps to make the letter a little more personal. I hope you understand we believe in God. We love what he's doing here. He is ministering to us. We're trying to be obedient to his calling. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we understand that, that everything in our church we have because you have provided. And you have been so good to us. And Lord, we want to be good stewards of that which you've entrusted in the, in it to us in our facilities, in our financial resources, in our staff that you have blessed us with, in, in our congregation, Lord. You have blessed, you have put the people that you want to be here now. So Lord, we pray for wisdom in how to walk each and every day through serving you and fulfilling your call for this church for this day. And Lord, will you provide the resources, the financial resources that we need to do this. And Lord, now as we transition into the message today, I, I pray that you would empower, you would enlighten Tim with the message. Lord, I'm blessed to have been in the first service and heard the message and wow, thank you. Thank you for how you are choosing to speak to us through lamentations. It's what a, a joy it is, what a, what a privilege it is, and thank you for, for our pastor for hearing your call to, to, to go through this study in these days that we're in right now. We thank you for your provision and your teaching and all that you do for us. And I pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you, Jerry. Thank you for being with us in worship this morning as we celebrate a risen Savior and open the Word together. A few things to let you know before we jump into Lamentations chapter 2. Uh, the ladies' lunch will be after the service today, and so um, a few minutes after the service, if you could, ladies, if you're signed up for that, make your way over to the other building into the backstage cafe and if you haven't been there before, or if you have been there before, I want to make sure we're, we're following the right uh, path to get over there, um, because they do have a name tag table um, set up, and so they want everyone to enter through the single door that is all the way down on the far side, all the way down between the two buildings, the single door that faces over towards this building. So if you come out either through this hallway or through the gymnasium, Look for the single door towards your left at the end of the building. That's where you want to enter. They don't want you to come in through the double doors on the other side of the building on the side parking lot. Um, so if you would, make your way there. And if I confused you, then just ask somebody that knows what they're talking about, and they'll tell you where to go. Um, the, uh, I wasn't invited to lunch anyway. I was just told to give instructions. Um, so the, this evening, Sunday night ministry will go on um, as, as normal. We have youth um, in this room this evening, kids upstairs for Awana. Uh, Jerry mentioned the bulletin. Um, you know, we stopped printing bulletins um, a couple years ago for COVID, and we always said, okay, we're, we're about to start again. We're about to start again, and then we just never really started again. We moved back here, and things got a little crazy and cramped, and we didn't go back to bulletins. But we just said we really need to be communicating well 
with you all, and so we, we give the important announcements verbally in service, um, but this is just a small little piece of paper. Hopefully, it doesn't add too much paper to your life, um, but on this sheet, you'll see four or five events on the first page here that uh, tells you about the women's lunch today, two weeks from today, the church picnic. That's an 11 o'clock service at People's Farm. We also have a little green sheet um, that is in the gymnasium on, on the table out there and on the countertop here in this room. The green sheet tells you about the picnic at People's Farm. It's a map to get there, those sort of things. Uh, we have a fellowship event on June the 4th. We call it our first Saturday fellowship. It was just a fun event, just an opportunity to spend time with other people from the church, play games, things like that, and you'll get more information about that. But please make note of these. Take one home. There's sermon uh, spaces to take um, notes on the back that we would love for you to make use of. The, the last thing is um, we still have a bin of Bibles out in the gymnasium where we are collecting Bibles for the Whitfield County Jail Ministry. So please, if you want to um, contribute to that, um, that is there for you. Um, now, as we enter into the book of Lamentations, one of the things I've, I've said as a goal here is that we've come to the book of Lamentations in this season in full realization that life is hard and God is good, that life is full of pain, but as we process through the pain, there is hope in the cross and hope in Christ. And so it's not just about what God did in the city of Jerusalem thousands of years ago. It's about how we learn how to pray, how we learn how to lament a life that is full of pain, a life that is hard. And so as we, as we enter into Lamentations 2 this morning, I want to actually lead us in a prayer of lament before we go into the passage. Because just as I was thinking um, today, this morning I woke up and was reading a couple things about um, the, uh, the mass shooting in, in Buffalo yesterday and thinking about those families, those that were affected by that. Um, I, I asked you a few months ago to pray for the Supreme Court and the argument of the Dobbs case and, and the hope of Roe versus Wade being overturned in our lifetimes, in our generation. And we see now, looks like that, that is poised to happen. But we also lament what, what has happened over the past generations. And also, um, that story is far from over. And there is much battle at, at the legal level, at the state level, that is, that is ahead um, on that issue of abortion. There's so much dismay, distrust, and division all throughout our society today. It is good and right to lament. We look at Ukraine and we see going out of the borders of our country into the world and we see crisis and pain and suffering. It is good and right to lament and to cling to God for hope in the midst of suffering circumstances. And even beyond that, we look at issues in our own country, issues around the world, and so many of those are far from our minds because of the great personal crisis some of us are going through. Maybe some of you are in a, such a place of personal crisis, you can't even think about what's going on outside because of the turmoil going on inside, inside your own heart, inside your own family, your own workplace, whatever. And so we turn to God this morning before we open to the book of Lamentations and we get the bad news of Jerusalem 4,000 years ago. Let, let's lament where what we are experiencing today and cling to Christ for hope. Join me in prayer. 
Oh, Father, we turn to you in lament. We turn to you in full awareness of the pain of this life. But in our suffering, Father, we choose to cling to you and cling to hope. And so, God, we praise you that in our pain, we have the opportunity to voice the pain to somebody who not just listens but cares, to somebody who not just listens and cares but is all-powerful and can actually provide a solution, somebody that provides hope and presence and power in the midst of our suffering. And so, Father, we choose in the pain to cling to you this morning. And maybe there are some of us in this room that are clinging to pain and struggling to cling to hope and just hoping for hope without experiencing hope. Father, we pray that you would this morning lead us on that journey of lament, the journey of grief, the journey of sorrow that takes us from a full realization, a full vocalization of the pain that we are experiencing and moves us towards casting our cares and our anxieties on you for you care for us. And as we present our requests to you, we are longing for, Father, and we are bold to ask for the peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that can only originate from you because you are our only hope. And yes, Father, we lament the events in Buffalo, New York yesterday. Father, we pray for those families affected both through loss of life and through the anxiety and and the trauma of what was seen and heard and experienced. We pray for grace, we pray for healing, and we pray most of all for your presence and for your redemption. Father, in Ukraine, we pray the same. There is so much pain and suffering, bloodshed and death, and we pray your presence among everyone, Father. We pray your presence among those that are suffering, We pray your presence among representatives of both nations. We pray your presence and your hope in believers there that are working so hard to shine the bright light of the gospel in the midst of despair. Father, I praise you in the midst of the lament. I praise you that that one of our own elders will be with us next week to share with us about the gospel hope that is being proclaimed on the streets and, and being demonstrated through deeds of, of kindness and mercy through local believers in Ukraine and Romania and other places. Father, I praise you for that gospel hope that in the midst of despair in Ukraine, the church is shining all that much brighter as you are at work to build your kingdom. And Father, I pray for the situations that cause despair and division in our own nations that, that the same result would come. That as there is despair and division in our nation, the church would shine bright. And that we would hold to our convictions. And Father, we praise you for the upholding of life. We pray that that result would, would continue and would, uh, would come to completion. But Father, then as, as state after state and community after community, Father, we fully expect that there will be great, great dismay and division over this issue of abortion for many years to come. But Father, we pray that you would protect lives, that you would protect the unborn, and that, Father, you would use your church for your glory to fight for life, to fight for truth, and fight for the grace of the gospel. May the light of your church shine all that much brighter in seasons of conflict and crisis. Father, we come as a people ready, ready to be used by you, by your grace, 
for your glory. Father, we want to be used by you. And so we ask, Father, as we lament the circumstances of this world, we turn to you asking for your presence and your direction that we might shine bright for the sake of your kingdom. Because we know that you are building your kingdom. And Father, we just want to be used by you. We want to be a part of it. And for those suffering personally this morning, God, as we turn to Lamentations 2, and we see the great crisis that the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem are experiencing, Father, I pray that the hope of the gospel would be clear and would be just as clear as the suffering. That hope would be just as, as tangible as pain and that your presence would shine through your word, would speak through me, and that every heart would be filled with the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Lamentations 2, turn with me, if you will. We have an expression in the English language that we use to, to explain something from completeness. You start at the beginning, you get to the end, you are explained the, explaining the A to Z of a situation. I have a question for you. This is your pop quiz for the day. How many letters are in the Hebrew alphabet? You will know the answer next week when you come in. You'll know the answer when you leave today. The, the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet is actually connected to the structure of lamentations in a way that you do not know that maybe you never would have thought of unless your Bible tells you. Some of you might actually know the answer whether you do or whether you realize you do or not. Look down at the book of Lamentations, chapter 1 and chapter 2 in your own copy of the Scriptures. How many verses are in Lamentations, chapter 1? 22, I heard of 22. How many verses are in Lamentations, chapter 2? 22. How many verses are in Lamentations, chapter 3? I tricked you, it's not the same in 3. Um, <laughs> Lamentations 1, 22 verses. Lamentations 2, 22 verses. Number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22. Do you think there's some, some reason for that connection? Uh, see, the book of Lamentations, it's in the section of the prophets. It's in the section of the prophets because it was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Okay, So if you look in your Bible and you see it listed as a prophet, you, you recognize this is listed in the prophets because it is written by a prophet. However, it's also a book of poetry. And it's a book of poetry with a particular structure. It's an acrostic poem. It's an acrostic poem, and, and if you knew the Hebrew alphabet, or if you knew Hebrew and could read it in Hebrew, it would jump off the page to you. Because what would you, you would look at is you would look at verse 1 of both chapter 1 and chapter 2, and you would see that the first line of verse 1 starts with the letter Aleph, which is the Hebrew equivalent of A. And then the first line of, of verse 2 in both chapter 1 and chapter 2 starts with faith, which is B. And then Gimel, Dalaf, Hey, all the way down to the 22 verses of the Hebrew alphabet. Because there's a structure in the book of Lamentations, and it would be like in English if we started verse 1 with the letter A and started verse 2 with the letter B and verse 3 with the letter C. We'd have to write a couple extra verses, but with 22 verses in the Hebrew alphabet, and, or 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 verses in this passage, what we see is a structure. And it's an intentional structure that is demonstrating completeness. That in our laments, in our grief, 
we have to go from beginning to end, from A to Z. And starting at the beginning of the alphabet in Hebrew and ending at the end of the Hebrew alphabet is a poetic way of communicating completeness as each lament is finished, is completed. And this is how we get our verse and chapter um, designations in this passage. So in chapter 1, as we saw last week, we saw this complaint, this lament, this expression of grief that is showing the completeness of grief from verses 1 to 22 in Lamentations 1. And in that, the prophet is crying out for comfort. There is no comforter. There is no one to comfort Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the she throughout chapter 1. Jerusalem is described as a widow. Jerusalem is described as a princess. And Jerusalem is described as being in dismay because God has rejected Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is suffering. Chapter 2 gets worse. Chapter 2 is darker, more violent, more despairing. It is harder. Chapter 2, this is officially the hardest part of the book of Lamentations. And if there's any, any chapter in Lamentations that seems where there is no hope, it is chapter 2. Now, chapter 3, next week, you're going to feel way better about the book of Lamentations because you're going to see that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases in chapter 3. You're going to see mercies that are new every, every morning in chapter 3. But for now, we're in chapter 2, and it's still a little bit dismal. But as we unpack it together, I want you to see that whereas chapter 1 is about grief and the completeness of grief, chapter 2 is about judgment and justice. And that's why it's so hard. Because God's justice needs to have a completion. God needs to pour out his judgment on those that turn against him. We are very comfortable talking about the good news of the gospel. But the gospel is not good news without the corresponding bad news. And the bad news for each of us is that we are sinners and God completely punishes sin. God pours out judgment on sinners. That's what Lamentations 2 is all about. And so I want you to see that on the front end, to say that as we read this and as we see God pouring out judgment on his chosen people, it is not because God is no longer slow to anger, but it is because God is just, and God's justice is good news. And we're going to see that by the end. Uh, Lamentations chapter 2, we're going to unpack it in three parts. God judges his people's sin, verses 1 through 9. I want you to look, as, as I'm about to read verses 1 through 9, who is the actor? Who is the subject of the verbs? Who is doing all the things in verses 1 through 9? Uh, 10 through 17, you'll see the first response of the people of God, and that is silence. They've got nothing to say to defend themselves. 18 through 22, we see the desperate cry in prayer. So that's our structure for this morning as we go through this completeness of understanding the judgment of God from Lamentations 2. So Lamentations 2.1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. 
He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of our daughter of Zion, in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. I just lost my place. Verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Jerusalem mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in, his, in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament, and they languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her kings and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Where is the hope? It's not in those nine verses. But I asked you to think and, and listen as we're reading that. Who is the actor? Who is doing all of these things in verses 1 through 9? It's God. 27 times, 27 verbs in verses 1 through 9 of which God is the subject. Verse 1, in his anger, he has. He has cast down. He has not remembered. Verse 2, he has swallowed up. Verse, uh, he has broken down. He has brought down. Verse 3, he has cut down. He has withdrawn. He has burned. Verse 4, he has bent. He has killed. He has poured. Verse 5, he has become. He has swallowed up. He has swallowed up. He has laid. He has multiplied. All of these actions that are happening in verses 1 through 9, God is the responsible party. And we've got to deal with that. Let me ask another question, not just who's the actor in verses 1 through 9. Let me ask you a question about God, about his character, about his nature. Is God angry? In verses 1 through 9, he sure is. Look at the way he says it. Verse 1, the Lord in his anger. Verse 2, the day of his anger. Verse 2, or yeah, verse 2, without mercy, in his wrath. Fierce anger in verse 3. Fierce indignation in verse 6. God is pouring out wrath and anger. But wait, 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 wait. The Bible tells us that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness towards his people. Of course, both are true. God is slow to anger. And, and you've got to realize, listen, if you look at this and you say, well, the Old Testament, there's, there's 39 books here, and we read through them, and they're kind of long, and I think it goes over a long time. It's easy to miss the number of years and generations through which God has been slow to anger with Israel and Jerusalem and God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham. By the time we get to the book of Lamentations, after years of God being slow to anger, there comes a point, and this is the vital point we need to get today. God will punish sin. God is merciful God is full of grace. 
But God is a just God who punishes sin. And therefore, though he is slow to anger, and that's great news, he doesn't just ignore sin. And he is angry with sin. And he will be slow to anger for generations. But at a time of completeness, will pour out his anger even on his beloved chosen people. That's what this passage tells us. And so we got to figure out, now what do we do with that? What do we do about that? Do we need to now be in fear of God's anger? And to what extent do we need to be in fear of God's anger? Because let's step out of Old Covenant Jerusalem and the nation of Judah and step into what it means to be a son or daughter of the king as a Christian believer in the New Covenant. Jesus has paid it all. We believe that. So then how do we approach this concept of God's anger and his justice? I got, I got five points I want to bring us today about the way we understand punishment, justice, and discipline from God so that we can orient ourselves into how we view God and how we view his justice. Because God's justice, hear me, is bad news for the sinner and good news for the righteous. And we have an opportunity to be made righteous, not because of something that we do, but because of what Christ has done. So that means the offer of God's justice is actually good news to each of us if we receive it. Let's unpack this carefully. Number one, here's what we need to know. The passage shows us sin must be dealt with completely. That's what verses 1 through 9 make explicitly clear. This is what a just God does. He punishes offenses. He punishes sins. Um, Isaiah 61.8, he says about himself, this is not my opinion about how I think God is or how I think God should be. This is what God says about himself, Isaiah 61.8. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong, and I will give faithfully their due. I, he said, I will punish those that do wrong and those that, are, that rob, because I love justice. I will fight for the weak that are being taken advantage of, and I will punish those that are evildoers and sinful. I am making an everlasting covenant. Romans 6.23 says, The payment, the wages of sin is death. And so in Lamentations 2, in these, these verses 1 through 9 that are so hard, that seem so violent, yet we get this picture of this God pouring out his wrath and we think that doesn't seem like the gentle and lowly Jesus. That doesn't seem like the warm Jesus that I love. We've got we've to do the hard work to figure out what is the gospel really saying to us that honors this God of justice and also proclaims his mercy and grace accomplished through his son. That's why we need point two. Once Christ has taken our sin, Christians are not condemned, will not be condemned. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 now, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. So here's what Jesus came to do. He came to take people that were condemned and make them not condemned. 
He came to move people from the place of condemnation. Here's what we have to understand about our sin. All of us are in that place of deserving Lamentations chapter 2. We deserve God's judgment in Lamentations 2 of pouring out His wrath on those that have rebelled, those that have sinned, those that have acted in wickedness. God created and set a standard for righteousness. Every single one of us have violated it, and therefore, something needs to happen. The sins that we've all freely committed need to be paid for. And there's two options. Either you stay in Lamentations 2 and you end up paying for your own sin by receiving the condemnation from God, or you turn your sin over to Jesus, receive His righteousness as a gift, and your sins are paid for by Jesus. Your sin is atoned for. The penalty is paid by Jesus. And so that means there's two groups of people in this room when it comes to condemnation. Those that still stand condemned under their own sin and the weight of it, and those that have been forgiven by Jesus. But then we also have to talk about, as Christians, what discipline looks like. Number three, God disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews says it clearly. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, and quoted then in Hebrews 12, 5, and 6. When God says it twice in the Bible, it's important. And it means that, that God does actually mean what he says there. He does love those who he disciplines, and he does discipline those whom he loves. And listen, I don't know how. I don't know how to take a child that you love and to love them in any way that does not involve discipline. It doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe you've tried it. Maybe you're a parent that you've said, I've been able to raise my child without disciplining them at all. Good for you. I've never seen it work. I don't understand how it could work. Because to me, discipline and love have to go hand in hand unless you just have the perfect child. And kudos to you. But, <laughs> but there's a couple of different ways that you as a parent can enact discipline on your child. Sometimes you as a parent see a kid do something that you know is going to add badly or end badly. And so the discipline that you enact on that child is you say, I've told you not to do this. I'm not going to stop you from doing it. I'm just going to let you experience your own consequences. And sometimes when you know it's going to end badly. You let your child, you let them experience the consequences for why you already told them it was going to end badly. If you do that, you're going to fall, you're going to get hurt, and then they come crying and you say, I told you so. I mean, I mean you, that's what I say. I don't know what you say. But, but there is a point in parenting where you, where you do some of that, where you recognize you've got to train your child that what Scripture says about reaping what you sow is real. That if you sow wickedness, you sow evil, you sow sin, you're going to reap a bunch of broken decay in your life. And if you live irresponsibly, you're going to reap irresponsibility later on in life. And guys, that's what God does with us, even those whom he loves. Sometimes when you're going down a negative path towards your own destruction, God just lets you experience the consequences for your own negative behavior. And that is a part of God's discipline. 
But then there is also not just this instructive discipline where he allows you to learn your own lesson along the way, and he doesn't stop you from learning that lesson. There is also corrective discipline where God intervenes to correct you, and he gives the discipline in the same way where I catch one of my kids doing something I've told them not to do. I then step in and say, okay, now it's time for you to receive consequences from me for your negative behavior. And God does that too. And, and here's the hard part for us. Discipline hurts. It's not fun. Hebrews says it like this. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but rather painful. But as discipline establishes its result, it creates this fruit of, of, um, fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by discipline. That's Hebrews 12, 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later, it yields the fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. So, man, I want my kids, when I discipline my kids, I want my kids to reap the fruit of righteousness because I'm using discipline to train them. And so does God, the loving Father, with us, whom he loves, his children. He enacts discipline for the sake of training and for the sake of the fruit of righteousness because he loves us. But all along the way, up until that time when the fruit of righteousness is revealed, it hurts. Experiencing discipline hurts. And it can be both corrective and instructive. So then here's what we have to, here's what we have to say here. In the negative experiences of our lives, in the times in which we are suffering and we have cause to lament, we have to orient ourselves on where we are here. I said earlier, there's two groups of people in this room. Either those people that still stand condemned before God because of their sin because you have not repented and given your sin to God and received his righteousness. There's those people. And then there's those people who are redeemed children of God who are no longer under condemnation, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Two groups of people, condemned or not condemned. But then let's expand it a little bit when it comes to discipline. If you are experiencing suffering in your life, there's, lots of, there's a couple different reasons. Let's, let's say three reasons why you might be experiencing suffering in your life. And if you're not experiencing any suffering or in, any pain in your life, you don't have to listen to me because I have no idea how to talk to you. If everything in life, your life is perfect, you just tune me out for a second. But either you're experiencing pain and suffering in your life right now because you still sit in that place of condemnation and you are receiving the punishment for your sins that you are enacting. Or... You're in the category of not under condemnation, and therefore, you may be experiencing some discipline from God because you've made some bad decisions, because you've lived irresponsibly. You have dishonored him, dishonored other people around you, and maybe the relationship that is ruptured, that, that is in your family, maybe it is your fault. And maybe there's such pain there. And maybe you feel guilty and you're in that point where I know the suffering in my life is self-inflicted and I just don't know what to do about it. Recognize that if you are in Christ, even if you are suffering because of your own self-inflicted wounds, there's grace for that. That even in that suffering that you might be experiencing, you are not experiencing condemnation. You're experiencing discipline that will allow you to grow into maturity in Christ in which you need to cling to him. So maybe you're suffering because you're in sin and you're under condemnation and you need to repent and turn to God. 
Maybe you're a child of God that is suffering because the Lord is allowing you to experience his loving discipline. Or maybe it's neither of those. Maybe you just happen to be living in a sinful world like the rest of us, and it hurts. And it's hard. And maybe the sin that caused your suffering is not your own sin, it's somebody else's sin. And maybe what you need right now is not to, not to repent for the sin that caused you to end up in this place of suffering, but what you need right now is to just desperately cling to the hope of the gospel that says that the crisis in your life is caused by sin, but not your own sin. We, we said it a couple weeks ago, and we need to remind ourselves of it every time we talk about sin and suffering. All suffering is caused by sin. God did not desire a world full of suffering and pain and death and disease. But when sin entered the world, it left us in this place of decay where the world around us is groaning, is calling out, God, redeem us, redeem your children, bring the day of completion. All of creation is crying out along with us on that. All suffering is connected to sin, but not all suffering is connected to the sin of the sufferer. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean that you caused your own suffering through your own sin. We have to recognize that the sinful world in which we live is far more complex than that. So we don't need simple answers, and we don't need to look at somebody that's suffering and saying, well, what do you need to repent of? You should just pray more. Maybe God is doing this. Maybe you just need to pray more. Maybe you need to confess something else. We can't do that to people because the world is not that simple. Sin is far more complex and far more wicked than that. But as... But as we look at this, as we look at the sin that is all around us and the suffering, therefore, that's all around us, the answer is always cling to the hope of the gospel. So, verse 10, we're going to see how the people then responded. How did the people respond to the judgment from God? Verse 10, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They've thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say to you to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Zion. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he's purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. This is the first response of the people. Verses really 10 through 16 and then 17 is another summary. Look at, who, look at the speech. Look at what is being said in 10 through 16. The elders in verse 10, they have nothing to say. The elders of the daughter of Zion, this means the elders of the city of Jerusalem, they're sitting and taking counsel together in the city streets. They got nothing to say. Nobody's got any answers. 
All the wisest guys in town, they have no answers. Why? Because they know why they're being punished. They know that Jerusalem has sinned against God, and all of God's actions are just because he's pouring out sin on a rebellious people. Verse 11, what does the prophet say? The prophet Jeremiah in verse 11, he can't speak. His eyes are so full of tears. He's worn out with tears. My eyes are spent with weeping and my stomach churns. He has nothing to say. Verse 12, there is a sound. So picture this. Put yourselves on the streets of ancient Jerusalem and the elders are sitting together with nothing to say. The prophet that you put your hope in is weeping over in the corner. He's got nothing to say. And the only thing you hear is in verse 12, the children, the babies crying out for food. The only sound in the city of Jerusalem is the traumatic sound of babies that are starving to death and have no food. And in verse 13, then the prophet looks inwardly and he says, I don't have anything to say. What can I say to you or compare you, O daughter of Zion? And then the prophet in verse 13 looks back at verse 14. You know who had something to say in verse 14? It was the false prophets. They had something to say. Because all up in the years leading up to this destruction of Jerusalem, there were plenty of people that were ready to sell the people of Jerusalem a bill of goods and say, don't worry, you're fine. God's not going to allow his temple to be destroyed. God's going to miraculously intervene. And there was false prophet after false prophet after false prophet bringing false hope, false messages from God, lying about what God was saying. And because of that, the people experienced the punishment of God because they followed the wrong advisors. They looked in the wrong direction. And then in verse 15, some people come into town and they've got plenty to say. And they're the enemies of Jerusalem. In 15 and 16, the sounds of Jerusalem, first you have no elders speaking, you have no prophets speaking, the false prophets have gone away, you just have babies crying out for food. And then in 15 and 16, you have the enemies of Jerusalem. they got plenty to say. And they're going to rub it in. Oh, is this the city that used to be the most beautiful on earth? Well, look at it now. Look at what has happened. Sometimes in our grief, we just don't have much to say. Especially when you are experiencing that weight of recognizing that you are actually suffering the consequences of your own sin. Have you ever been there before where you recognize, I hate where I am, I hate what I'm experiencing, and it's my own fault. I did this. I blew it. And then there's just no argument that you can make. You can try to talk your way out of it. You're not going to convince God that you're not sinning. You might be able to convince another person, no, 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 I'm not really as bad as it sounds. This point of silence is when you have no argument, no defense left for what you have done, and you recognize, I really am a sinner, and I really do deserve the punishment from God. But in verse 18, the next response is not, you don't end in silence. You then move to prayer. And in our suffering, guys, silence is a good way to handle suffering. But then we move to prayer. And in verse 18, their heart cried to the Lord, a wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. Look, Jerusalem is crying out to God. And Jeremiah is saying, don't stop. Don't give up. Don't fall asleep in your prayers. Don't give up because you've cried too much. Keep praying. Pray through the night. Pray for your children. 
Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. And then he says to God, look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priests and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You've killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised my hand, or and held and raised my enemy, destroy. So here's that point that I told you happens in every lament. Where at a certain point, what makes a lament a lament is that there's somebody to talk to about it. Is that you're not just crying out to the sky in grief and pain, but you actually have a direction to take your complaints and your requests. And here the direction is very, very clearly the almighty God. You don't just have a God that listens. You have a God that cares as he listens. You don't just have a God that listens and cares. You have a God that can do something about it. That is the power of the lament. When it feels like in your grief and your suffering, there's nothing you can do about the pain that you are experiencing. What the practice of lament, how it is a distinctively Christian practice, and it is different than, than the grief that does not have hope, as according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians. We do not grieve as those who have no hope because we know the way the story ends, and we have a direction to take our complaints and our laments. Somebody's listening, somebody cares, and he can do something about it. He can send us his presence. He can use his power. He can bring to completion an end of all of the pain. And he has established for us an eternal home where we will be perfectly in his presence without pain, without pain forevermore. And, and these, guys, these are just like cracks in the door. There's not a whole lot of hope here in Lamentations 2. It's just Jeremiah saying, guys, the only thing left to do is pray. So let's just pray all night. Let's just not get weary of praying. The lives of your children depend on it, so just cry out to God. Because the only thing the prophet can think of that could be of any help at this point. And we'll get to chapter 3 next week, and we'll see that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The hope shows up. But, but for us, we know we do not have to. We do not have to stay in Lamentations 2. We do not have to stand in that place of condemnation, but we actually can embrace the hope no matter how bad the suffering is. And I recognize, I do not know what pain you are experiencing in your personal life, in your family, in, in, in what you are, in the life that you are living right now. There is great pain in this room that I have no idea what it's all about. I get that. But as I approach that, I say that, the, that there is no pain in this room that God cannot deal with. And therefore, we, we close Lamentations 2 with the question, what, what can we do? How can we hope? If we believe in God's judgment, how can we fight for hope? Number one, we hope because the penalty has been paid. The transaction is completed, the payment is done, and we have new life and righteous life through Christ. And guys, if you're not there, then it's time to get there. If there's anybody in this room that is listening to this, and I, I don't know what it means to repent 
and belief and, and be forgiven. I have this idea in my head of who Jesus is, and I've kind of just believed in him for a while, but I've never actually repented of my sin. I've never actually asked him to be my Lord and be my Savior. I've never actually asked him to take my sin from me. It's time to do that, to repent of the sins that achieved for you nothing but condemnation from God, to believe that Christ can redeem you from those sins and to receive the, the payment that he's offering and the gift of his righteousness and eternal life through his resurrection. So we hope, we hope in that. We also hope because we know that because the penalty has been paid, the pain has an ending date. That there is a day when there will be no more tears and no more pain, no more death, no more disease. And guys, I wish I knew that date. It'd be really helpful to just circle it on the calendar and know this is where we're going. And it's just, we got... We got X amount of days left. It would really help us to live in hope. But we, but we are no less certain that that day will come. If the day was circled on our calendars, it would not create any more certainty that God has done what he said he will do and God will do what he said he will do. But we also hope because the promise is true. In verse 20 here, the, the glimpse of hope in Lamentations 2 is there in verse 20 when Jeremiah calls out, God, remember who you're dealing with here. Because that, that question is, God, will you remember who you're dealing with? Remember your covenant promises to your people. God doesn't forget his covenant promises. And God does not forget that the offer of salvation has been made to all of us and to every nation, tongue, and tribe now. And so life can be had. Payment for sin can be achieved. But only by confession, repentance, and crying out to Jesus that we really do need him because we have no hope in this life without him so we're gonna i'm gonna ask the band to rejoin us on stage here i'm gonna ask you as we sing to truly consider the words of the song consider the gospel applications do you need jesus do, do you really need jesus or is jesus just in addition to what you're already trying to do and accomplish in your life is he the only hope for life and for death or is he just a good teacher and a good idea that you like to follow and believe in? And if you really need Jesus, then stand with us and sing. And let's reflect on the beauty of this message that allows us to endure suffering in hope of the end of all days when there will be no more pain, no more suffering, only hope and joy. Let's stand and sing. I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart, you're the one that guides my
We have a, an introduction um, to make here um, as we close the service, so you guys can actually go ahead and sit down, because I'm going to bring a, several people up here. Um, I'm going to invite Jerry and Candy Nelson to join me on stage, as well as other um, pastor or other elders and elder wives join me on stage. And it's time to introduce to you our newest elder. Um, we said um, over the last couple of months we've had this... Um, yeah, yeah, all y'all come up. Jerry and Candy, y'all right here, then everybody else just sort of gather around. Um, we had the uh, elder and deacon leadership nomination process. 
uh, that we've done over, uh, we did in the spring and in March and April, and uh, that was completed, and we sent out via the e-update the list of the elders and deacons for this term. So our elders for this term, so I don't forget anybody, uh, myself, um, Jerry Watkins as our chairman, Matt Drobnik as our vice chairman, Bill Sims, Steve Fain, John Joyce, Larry Winter, um, Tom Perry, and Jerry Nelson as a first-time elder is serving with us. So what we're going to do is Matt, as vice chair, is going to close our service in prayer and pray over Jerry as his ordination for serving his first term as an elder in this church. It's also important to state that our um, deacon board is uh, for this year, Jim Brown, Raymond Hobby, Andreas Brewweiler, Dwayne Miller, Zach Miller, Alan Clark, David Carell, Tony Paluszczyk, Ryan Griffin, serving for the first time, Jason Rotten, Mark Higgins, and Noah Stokes are all uh, serving as uh, elected deacons. That, and that process went from the church nominating people, the elders approving the nominations the church had made, and then us making invitations to the men. And these are the men that accepted the call. And uh, the, the uh, chairman of the, the deacons is uh, uh, Raymond Hobby, uh, Mark Higgins as vice chair, and Ryan Griffin as secretary. Those are your officers for the deacon board. So please pray for both groups of men and their wives as they serve together in the leadership of this church and uh, as I said, we're going to officially install Jerry as one of our elders um, this morning now, and we're going to have Matt pray over him. Dear Heavenly Father, I just am so encouraged as I look around at our church and I see you working in so many lives and in so many ways. And I, I thank you for bringing uh, Jerry and Candy to our church and what they've already contributed as active members. Thank you for uh, Jerry's service as a deacon and uh, how he served faithfully there. And, and now uh, you, you, his heart for you has been made evident and, and through the votes of your people, um, we, we've selected him together as a elder. I pray that uh, this would be a good thing for him, a good thing for your church and something that would glorify you. I thank you um, that he's willing to serve. Thank you um, that he has shown his gifts that uh, will aid your church, your local church in fellowship and your church universal. I pray that you would give him strength as sometimes there will be long hours and, and hard subjects. I pray that you will uphold him and his marriage with Candy. Um, and I pray that you would bless him for his service, bless him with knowing you more and drawing closer to you, that he would be convinced that he needs you and that he would depend on you. And I pray that in his service, you would be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now I will close us with the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.